Good evening and welcome back to Editing Aloud. And I have with me, as always, a panel of South Africa's most thoughtful journalists joined this evening by city economist Gina Skuman on a day in which we've just had inflation figures, 4.3%, Gina, a little bit above the market consensus. Does that make any difference as the Monetary Policy Committee starts to wrap up its discussions? It really shouldn't. Um, it's hindsight data, but also... Just remember the number you just said, 4.3. 4.3 is um, as low as it more or less has been for quite some time now, and much lower than where inflation has been, generally speaking, in South Africa over the last decade or even more. So in terms of monetary policy being, I call it hawkishly dovish. <laughs> in other words, they can cut rates further. We could see rates reduce over the next 12 months by, by more than what they've already done but they will always be cautious and that's because risks abound fiscal policy risks through the currency uh, oil risks as we've seen more recently there are always risks and i think it's 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 good in an economy like south africa where things are rather unpredictable to have a more cautious monetary policy committee the governor who's the subject in fact of this week's financial mail cover he has long suggested you know that 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 he wants to he he wants actually the midpoint four and a half percent not the top of six um with these kinds of inflation figures last month we had four percent is he in sight of this and is there a sense in which he's going to be saying to himself and his committee let's not to take our foot off the pedal now because we're finally getting what we wanted in terms of low inflation well certainly i think uh, a keen objective of monetary policy over the last two years, three years, has been to really anchor inflation expe expectations closer to 4.5%. So all the forecasts in South Africa seem to be hovering at least between 45 and 5 Inflation expectations, that, that's of um, not just the forecasters, but also the trade unions and the corporates, the price setters, the wage setters, those have also come down quite a lot, but they're currently sitting at about 5%. They could very well start moving into the fours. So as much as we often say that our, our South Africa Reserve Bank's monetary policy is overly hawkish, they have achieved a lower inflation environment for South Africa, helped by a bit of luck. You know, we, we can't always count on the fact that growth is going to disappoint. We can't always count on the fact that global inflation is going to be um, softer than expected. But they've largely started to achieve the objective. And hence, even though we think we have a hawkish monetary policy committee, they've already given us a rate cut in July. And we think that we will see interest rates reduce further. Genevieve, politically, how does this play? I mean, if I were a trade unionist, I would be saying, great, 4.5% inflation on some sort of sustainable basis. But in fact, has the pressure on the Reserve Bank to sort of shift its mandate, let go a little bit from... from the left part of the ANC and the unions. I mean, is it is it lightening up at all? Are um, the politics in relation to the Reserve Bank getting any? No, more actually, since that whole debacle of Ace Magashule and his comments um, after a NEC meeting saying that they were going to overhaul the mandate, and they saw Ramaphosa having to walk back those comments. We had a week or two of, you know, up and down, and who's saying what. But since then, we've actually heard. Politically, I haven't heard anything um, regarding the Reserve Bank. Is that faction of the ANC who was pro-nationalisation and changing the mandate now going, OK, well, the president has said not now. Are they listening? Um, 
is it going to come up again at a later stage? I'm actually not sure. But at this stage, we haven't heard anything for a while on that. So it's gone kind of it's gone quiet. onto the back burner? Absolutely. Kanye, is that your sense, that it's gone onto the back burner? I mean, that's my the sense mandate, too. The mandate, the independence, the nationalization? I, I think so too. I mean, I, I think I sort of, sort of have made the point in my own column on Monday. I was saying like, like four days before the meeting, you know, nobody's been talking about the Secha because usually like you know, a week <laughs> before the meeting, there's all be all these debates about where's policy, where's the mandate. And all of all of that stuff is really quiet. And I don't know whether it means people have been tamed or they just got other things to worry well, about. You know, because <laughs> the last word on this actually was Jesse Duarte after the last NEC meeting, where um, a question came up. It wasn't a main point of the NEC. There was a line just that you know they they going to up, they uphold the whole thing of the mandates and the constitution, etc. And she was asked a question about it, and she basically said what Sol Ramaphosa had said at the time that at this time they're not looking at changing anything and the way the mandate is set out of the constitution is the way it's going to stay. I mean, it, it just seems to me like South Africa has quite a few issues all at once. So you talk about the Reserve Bank for a bit and then you talk about NHI and then all the attention goes to NHI and then it goes somewhere else. So you're kind of saying we, we are paying attention to the general populace's concerns and the union's concerns, but we have so much on our plate that we can't necessarily make a change now. So it's everything's being looked at, you know, that's kind you of sort a, of only obsess about one, one or two things at a time yeah. and then we move on to the next obsession. Gina, mm -hmm. looking ahead, the, the risks that you mentioned, let's come back to those. The oil story this week has been mm. quite remarkable. Drones, people accusing <laughs> each other. I mean, what does that mean for global oil prices, number one, but also for us and inflation? Well, I think the first thing to realize is these things are completely unpredictable, right? You know, we, we always, as economists and analysts and policymakers, try and look forward to the future, but we also realize there are big forecast errors, which basically means you just can't forecast everything accurately, particularly in the near term, right? But what it does really mean is that if there is a risk that oil prices will go up, will they go up for a sustainable amount of time. See, that's also very important. If it's a once-off move, um, policymakers such as the MPC typically can look through. They call it noise. Um, for South Africa, we've got a pretty hefty import bill when it comes to oil. Um, so as soon as that oil price goes up, if it's also then combined with the currency being weaker, then the month before, of course, you get the petrol price hike. And then we call it the first order impact to inflation, is that it adds to inflation because petrol prices go up. The trick, however, for what's going on in South Africa right now and in our inflation basket is that it's this second order of inflation that's diminished so much. So typically it's passed through. You know, so typically when the economy was flying and everything was okay, you know, all the corporates would say, oh, well, it's going to cost us more money to distribute things around the economy. So we're going to just take that amount of, of their cost and push it onto our consumer prices. And hence you get a second order of inflation that comes through. Growth is extremely weak and has been extremely weak for a very long time. And these um, corporates, particularly your really big retailers, for an example, there are only five of them really. They make up about 65% market share. Now I know that often comes down to some criticism that we've got this market concentration and we certainly do. But that also means they come with this economies of scale. They find very clever ways to get around. So they can they costs, can absorb, absorb if they need to. Not and, this, and, is, yeah. and the evidence seems to be, look, that that's what exactly what's happened. Yeah. That that uh, 
people don't have pricing power as, as economists. I know, say. definitely. I mean, if you look at the, the retail numbers and everything else, and the retail that's the results from retail companies. But I was actually the question for Gina. Was, now that we've moved on from, say, wherever we were, inflation has since been entrenched around 4.5%, there seems to be this idea that 45 is a target. But obviously, we know the target is 3 to 6. Do you think, is there at a point where the Reserve Bank says, we need to change our messaging now, you know, let people remember, remind people of 3%? Nobody ever talks about 3%. Yes, I think that's actually a very important topic. Um, I'm, I'm sure over the next 12 months, it's going to become an increasing bigger topic to talk about. Um, so in other words, if we look back over the last 12 to 18 months, it's exactly that. The, the South Africa Reserve Bank um, managed to communicate very quickly over two years that actually 4.5% is the ideal target, not 6% at the top of that range. And that introduced this new concept that actually we don't hike interest rates when they're above six, when inflation's above six. We actually hike interest rates when inflation's nearing six. So kind of around five, five and a half, you start getting very hawkish. But to that point, inflation keeps surprising to the downside. Our own forecasts, my forecasts at City, show that inflation's going to hit 4% by the end of next year, which means if I'm wrong and there is a reasonable chance of that happening with all the things going on in the world, it could be lower. It usually does tend to be lower. So if it's in the threes, by the rules of inflation targeting, all else equal, you should be cutting rates. In fact, there's another question which I haven't come across at all, and I shouldn't think politically this is the time. I mean, theoretically, policymakers, being the Ministry of Finance, could now say, okay, well, let's look at a different kind of target. Because as I understand it, most yeah. other countries in the world have a point target, not a range like we've got, and we've got a very big range. Four and a half percent is the target, Alistair. What oh. chance of getting that one through? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, maybe it is what they should do, but they, they seem kind of re reticent to change. You know, what's been kind and of in politically, place, that so. would be. Can the finance minister politically just make that decision? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. We already see that, 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 that he's oh, already yes. having a, the finance minister is already getting the backlash <laughs> from his um, counterparts in the alliance, except well, his colleagues in the alliance and the ANC based on his um, new policy plan. So I don't know if it's not this that is easy not politically. I mean, is is that something that has to go through the? The political stages, though. I mean, I mean, we have to go to the, the, what the constitution says. What is the, what, what is the, yeah. it's, it's like, what, what's like the value of the rent? Or what, so over time, if the inflation across our major partners is running at 1%, well, then and we've, if we're aiming for 4.5%, then are we aiming for like a, to protect the value of the rent? Are we, are we aiming we for like a weaker rent consistently? The constitution allows for this, constitution allows yeah. for that, and that's great, and it should. But politically in this country, it doesn't work that way. It, it goes to the political players first who mm. it's got to be a consensus remember we've got to this is the governing party that's setting policy so one figure is not going to be allowed to make yeah. that decision on their own actually i mean at a time when gina we surely are worried again about ratings downgrades um what are those risks <coughs> well in the context of monetary policy when you're concerned about ratings downgrades then monetary policy has to be highly credible it has to be relatively hawkish in an uncertain environment. That doesn't mean don't cut. It just means be very conscious of your decision when you are cutting rates. Um, and, and in the end... Be conscious that your decision isn't seen to be counter-intuitive. Yeah, absolutely. To be seen your, your decision isn't populist, it's in line with inflation targeting, which of course it is. Um, but also, I, I must say, when it comes to what we call anchoring inflation, 
um, looking after the long end of uh, the yield curve in the bond market, which are very good things to do for an economy, um, low inflation is very good for that environment. A highly credible and cautious uh, monetary policy committee is very good for that environment. So when we talk about mandate changes, I mean, certainly it's not on the table right now. The political climate probably doesn't argue for it. But if we are going to move to change, I would say it's probably more either a 3 to 5% range or maybe even a point target. Just say, well, we've got a 3 to 6 range. Ourselves in Israel are the only emerging markets left with a range. Every other emerging market in the world has moved to a point target with a tolerance band. So I would say it's same, same, but different. But it just explicitly puts 4.5% in all of our minds as the true target. So there's no more debate that maybe it's 3 or 6 or, or whatever it is. But you still have some tolerance around that. So that if you move out of that 4.5% midpoint, you don't have to act in interest rates one way or the other. But ratings downgrades, it's all about fiscal policy. A groveling climb down this morning by former finance minister Trevor Manuel and now old mutual chairman. Uh, Trevor Manuel, who has really um, been at the heart of, of a very, very messy and horrible battle with, with Chief Executive Peter Moyo. Um, look, can you, your front page story about, about the climb down, I mean, uh, the climb down is Manuel apologizing for what he said about the judiciary. Mm. I mean, how does this look for someone who had a global reputation built over 20 or 30 years? Well, as he said himself, I mean, it was an unguarded moment maybe last week. People maybe should have apologized immediately and said, like, I shouldn't have put it that way. I mean, in the context of what he was saying, it actually, I didn't think it was that bad. It's just like the, that one line about you know, someone who happens to wear a robe, which implies a sort of lack of respect for the judiciary. And then I think that was damaging for Trevor. I mean, he's been like the sort of like elder statesman, you know, from finance minister and except from Mandela all the way to like, the first term of Zuma. And he was... And, and you contrast him with the likes of the EFF that actually he's been in court battles with actually where he's actually won where they've defamed him and accused him around SARS. And then, then for him then to make that kind of comment and suddenly it puts him almost in the same brackets as the, as the likes of Malema. So that's why, that's why it actually looks bad for him. Actually, like, I, must, it, I mean, I was thinking about it watching that press conference where he said that. I mean, did, did you get the feeling he didn't do any preparation? I mean, did he actually have his messaging clear? Did you no, see no, that? I don't think he did. So... Clearly, that whole debacle, something hasn't been done right on all mutual's part. You know, it seems like there isn't proper due process. With, it's certainly not proper you know, communication. And, and yeah. communication from a labor side. And they could lose a lot of money you know, through this if, if Moyo kind of has his way. Mm -hmm. And it takes him to court and so on. So I think there's a bit of arrogance on so Manuel's part. And must be surely shareholders are going to be, there's going to be a bit well, of a growing well, I mean, clamor for, for Manuel himself to resign, whether he's in the right or the wrong. Yeah, you'd kind of think he should now step down. Um, what, what I find is interesting with something like Old Mutual is how much does the CEO actually now play a role in the organization? Because they're kind of, in a way, maybe he's creating, you know, Manuel's creating this impression that Moyo was like this superstar in the company. You know what I mean? He's almost overdoing, like, the, the sort of effect of them losing him because he's made such a public thing out of it instead of mm. maybe settling on the side and saying, you know, but Genevieve, I, I suppose it's more damaging in a sense because it comes with other attacks on the judiciary. Absolutely. Yeah. At a time where, as Lacanio said, we could call them Manuel's political nemesis, the EFF. Um, I think that the comments were very unfortunate, especially at a time where the 
we know the judiciary was the last line of defense in the state capture years. It's probably going to be the final arbiters in these cleanup years as well. And you have, if you have people who are respected and you have political leaders and that making such comments about the judiciary, how are you expecting citizens to have confidence in the judiciary? We already saw how the criminal justice system was decimated in the last 10 years. Um, they tried to do it to the judiciary. It didn't happen. We can't afford to have comments like this when we're, when we're trying to clean up. When, you know, I'm talking of institutions that have been under attack. SARS, also this morning on your front page, mm. um, calls for, for <coughs> SARS really to, uh, well, for government in general to cease to employ any consultants such as those who worked for SARS, the Baines, the Gartners, the, the consultants seem to have enabled mm. state capture. Um, Lucanio, I mean, is that something that is going to happen? Is government going to refuse to employ these people anymore? Are there risks to such a strategy? Mm. It's a pity Natasha Marion is not here because she's the one who taught me everything I know about Bain. <laughs> like I was saying to you earlier, how I, didn't didn't even, I, I, could, I couldn't even tell from where, what Bain Capital to Bain and Co. at the beginning of this. But this has been one of the, I mean, I mean for them, it's been a, a long standing nightmare. I mean, they've been on a or what they call a charm offensive recently. Trying, you know, they've got this, Bain has been uh, yeah, this ad advisory committees and things, and then they've tried to apologize. But then they've never really fully accounted for what they did. I mean, if you go and read the Nugent Commission, I mean, Robert Nugent is very clear that... It Bain, was incredibly yeah, deliberate. Yeah, that yeah, was, I mean, yeah. what, what struck me so much mm. at the time. It was, not, it, was, it was not a mistake. They yeah, deliberately definitely. worked with Tom Moyani and the president, in fact, for I think, exactly, months like, or years I, before. I think while you might blame sauce. one individual for that, but then I think when, when you read the, the New Genesis Commission, it's more damaging in a sense that like it says Bain's attempts at... Redress. Judge Nugent doesn't believe they were genuine. Doesn't believe they've come out openly and admitted everything. And obviously, like you know, Ishmael Mamonia too was involved through all of having observed like the destruction of, of SARS. He's not in any mood to forgive, as you can tell from his comments. Momo, Momo wouldn't generally be forgiving so, in general. But Tina, we are then left with the problem of a SARS which has been, whose capacity has been uh, destroyed to some extent. What evidence? Are we seeing that it's being fixed at the kind of rate we would hope for? Well, I think the, uh, a key problem here is how much we expect things to change quickly after being decimated for so long. Um, one area of the whole National Treasury, South Africa Revenue Service, um, fiscal policy arena that I'm quite hopeful about is SARS. I do think the new commissioner um, in just his first couple of months, has been doing a, a rather good job of just trying to up-team morale, trying to get to the bottom of, of not just the high-level cases, but also filling vacancies, having vision, having leadership. You know, these sound like very qualitative variables, but in the end, if you look across South Africa, most of our institutions, that has been the biggest problem, is that most institutions lost leadership. And one's trying to imagine what it was like to sit in SARS yes. with, with all of this going on, with the, with the, the good people Absolutely. So, I mean, mm. yes, we lost a certain amount of revenue collection because of what SARS was like. And who knows how long it's actually going to take to better and recover all of that. But I'm hopeful that it will happen. And I mean, I, I have no idea on timelines, but I like to imagine that if it took 10 years to get us to this point, it'll take five years to get us out of it. 
So in other words, the recovery rate can be far Faster greater. Than the destruction yes, rate. Exactly. Can you what is your take on that? I think I think Gina makes a good point as well. And also like you know, the capacity, we talk about the leadership, but also I mean Kisvet, I'm sure, is a good guy. He was there before. But I'm sure when, when he got there as well and he discovered the layer below him, imagine the, I mean, like the, I mean, the kind of middle managers who were forced out of there, all the good people who were forced out of there. So you might bring in somebody in the top who's got all the best intentions, and when they get there and then they find... You need the, you yeah. need the middle management yeah. Yeah. and the supervisory and, layer. And I think, yeah. like, I think Natasha, before she, she rejoined us, I, mean, I think she had a good story on SARS about the fight back within SARS. Because you know, Moyane didn't just, Moyane might have gone, but he left, but he left a lot of he people behind. He left people behind him, yes. But do you know what? We, the, the revenue numbers so far, I know it's early in the fiscal year, but the revenue numbers are awful. Are not looking <laughs> good, right? And what does that mean? We've got the, the medium term budget coming next month. Mm. What is that going to look well, like? Let's be quite clear here. The reason the revenue numbers are looking really awful is less about um, SARS and actual tax collection and more actually just about the fact that nominal GDP growth, so not the real GDP growth, the kind of half a percentage we always refer to in, in the media and in discussions, but nominal GDP growth, which is loosely speaking in real money plus inflation. Terms, yeah. It's what's mm. happening right now. Um, on average, in the February budget, Treasury had forecasted 7, 7.5% for the next three years. The first half of this year has seen nominal GDP growth of 4 to 4.5%, right? So that's well below. And that just shows you the extent of how weak this economy is. So if you start looking at the problem with revenue collection, it's because this economy is just simply not performing. So the biggest part of what's going to change between February and the medium-term budget, aside from ESCOM and everything that's going on there, is just the extent to which we have to readjust fiscal policy in a realistic way for what's realistic with nominal GDP growth. You can't credibly present nominal GDP growth figures, which revenue's pinned on, of 7% plus. They're just not believable. Right, and and this is a problem we've had for decades. I think I think you 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 said in a note recently that 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 what is going to be key to the way the rating agencies view us is the credibility. Absolutely, mm -hmm. credible numbers, a credible plan for Eskom. Without Absolutely. that, we're in trouble. Well, the beauty of that is that when you have something more credible, it's more realistic, and then you're not going to miss your targets as easily. Yeah, yeah. Right. Then 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 what? When you you know the the thing about rating agencies. Um, to put it very simply, is that when they come to a country, there are two main categories they look at. The macro fundamentals of the, of the country, which is everything from growth to how your debt metrics are, and those have obviously deteriorated and deteriorated for a long time now. But if you want to offset that, you need the institutional strength as the second category to basically look across the table from them when they say, guys, you've got a problem. And then the institutional strength of everyone they see needs to look at them and say, don't worry, we got this. We got a plan, we got the credibility, and that needs to be believable. And Jen, have we got that? Well, I was about to ask that. Do we have that Do credible have plan? That? I mean, you and talk to the politicians. The medium-term medium budget is around the corner, and is there a credible plan for Anything. Uh, is there? Is, well, we'll I, find I haven't soon. heard anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Parliament this Parliament week. is um, closing down this week for two weeks. And? Yes. Have you seen any credible plans lately? No, well, the thing is, surely when they, when they go and decide if they're going to you know, downgrade or not, they, they realize the implications are very severe. So 
I've heard mm. it's like seven years to recover from a downgrade, and if it's that long, but I, I guess... It, yeah, it depends what drives it. Yeah. Typically, if it's policy and politics that got you to that downgrade position, it's more difficult to get out of it. Um, but I just want to be very clear on something, yeah. and, it, and it comes out in this um, column piece here on the front page, is that when it says, um, and, and she did, uh, the lead analyst did state this at the summit, that uh, South Africa um, is unlikely to see a ground, downgrade for 12 to 18 months. She's absolutely correct, but that's not a relief. See, the thing is, we're on a stable outlook. The worst that could happen when they meet on the 1st of November and make their decision is either a negative outlook or a review to downgrade. The negative outlook is usually on for 12 to 18 months. Hence her saying, downgrade is 12 to 18 months uh, so away. So the clock is ticking, as it were. Well, yes. what it implies to me is that the negative outlook now has a much greater probability than it ha ever has. It doesn't mean they'll do it, but mm. my goodness, we're getting very close and we need plans and we need credible plans. With one minute to go, talk about negative outlooks. Brexit and the UK, Lucanio, the country mm. where you've been living. I mean, the clock is not ticking towards a no-deal Brexit. No, it's looks kind of like, like it. watching a catastrophe from day to day. You know, like the other day, like I was, I, was, I, started, I, I got myself optimistic. And in that sense, I'm thinking, I mean, the UK for all its, for all the politics. I mean, the politics is probably broken forever, but the economy is quite like vibrant. You know, I mean, look, look how, how well it's, it's, been, it's been resilient, and it's, it's still by far one of the most like dynamic economies in Europe. And I think over time they'll probably be okay, but the drama is. <laughs> <laughs> in the short term. We're going <laughs> to leave it there because we've got to hold on to any bit of optimism yeah. about basically anything that we can find. And that's all we have time for. Thank you very much for joining us. And please join us again next week for another edition of Editing Aloud.